0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Calm Demands Answers Show. This is a sad one for me. Um, After this episode, I'm going to be taking a step back from the podcast, at least during football season and during this fall semester of my senior year in college. Um, Over this last year, you guys have grown into a show that I can be extremely, extremely, extremely proud of. You guys have created a great community of demanders. You guys you guys push me to be better every day, and I will always forever be grateful. But for right now, for my own personal mental health, I've been grinding and grinding over this last year, and I need to take a step back and enjoy being a kid for a little bit. So without further ado, enjoy episode 74. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The Conor Man's Answer Show, episode 74. So I tell all my guests to start out, all I like them to do is just introduce themselves, say who they are, what they do, things like that.
1: So my name's Hugh James. I'm a, a science communicator from South Wales in the UK. Um, my kind of background is astronomy and space science and geology. And, and now I, I talk about science to anyone who is willing to listen to me um, for any length of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, that's, that's awesome, man. And I had a... Um evolutionary anthropologist on not too long ago, a couple of days ago, actually. And we were talking about it and he was like, he's like, I like how you are kind of what I'm doing with my shows. I kind of fell into becoming like a medium talking with people like scientists and ranging from like entertainment to like science, you know, and I just kind of sit here and I just ask questions and i kind of just be the middleman. So I kind of like to call myself the middleman and I kind of like to just listen and, and hopefully I can, we can make it so the people listening Are sitting where I'm at you know they're they're learning as much as I am they're growing as much as I am but you know to start off you said your background's in astronomy and did you say geology I'm sorry
1: astronomy and space science and geology I wanted to be a planetary geologist when I was a youngin how did you get into that so I actually got into university on a sports science degree because I also wanted to do sports science, um, but then kind of I got to university and was like, oh, "Astronomy sounds good." I remember for my eleventh birthday, I had a telescope with my parents because I, I saw so one on on QVC on the which used to be a shopping channel, which now just sells jewelry but used to sell lots of different things and I wanted a telescope and got it, and um, was just in love the stars man like. You know, I, I was the classic science kid who wanted to be a paleontologist when Jurassic Park came out, and wanted to be an astronomer uh, as well, and and an astronaut. I kind of did some training for that. And like when I got to university, they were like, "We've got this astronomy degree, and you can mix it with geology." And there were only two universities in my country that did it at the time. And I was like, "And this one was 15 minutes from my house, so I was like, I'm in on on that." And they were just building a new telescope on the roof of one of the buildings, and I was like, "Yeah, man, astronomy." and space is is pretty cool but i i loved geology and and got quite high marks in in college in, in geology so i was like this is a thing i'm really good at and this is a thing that i'm really interested in so i can maybe i can put those together and and talk about like you know how different planets throughout our solar system um have different types of um geology in them they do different things they're made up of different things why is that the case what about exoplanets what are they made of like all this kind of stuff
0: yeah dude honestly to start out a question i have that you're talking about this we you learn this stuff when you're like a kid but you kind of lose it when you're talking about stars and 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 the planet especially within the solar system how does it work that this is a really dumb question so i'm sorry that i'm asking this but how does it work and why are the four first planets in our solar system rocky and the and the four afterwards gaseous and i i have no idea and like they always talk about storms and jupiter how does all that work like the components of those specific planets
1: so I'm going to, I'm going to preface this with, I, my bachelor's is in astronomy. It's been a while since, <laughs> since working in anything to do with astronomy. I still, I still, you know, I'm making a film at the moment about space cameras and stuff and I'm still kind of in it. Um, I'm a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, but like, yeah, my working days in astronomy has been a while, but w- to, to answer your question, we, we, we still, I'm not sure. Like we still, the, the, the prevailing theory is that, you know, um, Planets and solar systems form, and we, we've just started taking pictures, uh, like direct visual pictures of this, of moons forming around other planets in in other solar systems, which is crazy. But you imagine like a, a spinning disk that's like all on one plane. Like a um, a good experiment you can do for this is with on a, a dinner plate, putting some water in and sprinkling some some pepper uh, into it as well, and you see all these different um, bits floating around, and that was like our early solar system. Everything was floating around and and things started to come together right at the middle, which uh, turned out to be our sun. And the heavier elements would get pulled in closer because they have more gravity with them and um, they do what we call accretion. We had a big accretion disk and it started to come together in the middle, which was the the sun. And then when the sun ignited 5 billion years ago, um, that ignition, that nuclear fusion started uh, pushed everything like in a soul with the solar wind out towards the edges of the solar system. So things would get blown out, but those heavier elements that are, are towards the the front, Mercury, um, Venus, Earth, and, and Mars, obviously they don't get blown away because, because um, they're just heavier. So we end up with terrestrial rocky planets towards the the inner of the solar system. And then all those gases get pushed further and further out. So you end up with things like Jupiter and, and Saturn further out as well.
0: Okay. That that makes a lot of sense too. And it's really hard when you think about the solar system in in a non-scientific way to think about the sun as being the center, right? Because when you think about it, you think of the sun and then then they range the planets, right? But if you really think about it, the sun is definitely the center. And and it it still ranges out, but it's like almost like this weird circular thing. But you said you work you ha, it's you got your um, bachelor's in astronomy. What exactly are you working on now? What is your projects are you doing? You said you're making a film about scientific cameras. What are you working on right now?
1: I same things as you, man. Like I'm I'm the middle person. I'm the I often say the translator between uh, scientists and the public you know um science is often a a different language to a lot of people you work with any scientists and they'll have their own language they'll have their own jargon that's difficult to understand especially if, you know being from an astronomy background if I spend any time with geologists uh, sorry with um, biologists I won't know what they're t- talking about um because it's just a, a different dialect in the same language of science and my my job then is to kind of like talk to them, work out what they're trying to say, and then either make a film about it. We do it through photography or do it through public speaking uh, like this. So I train scientists. I work with National Geographic at the moment, training their explorers to to translate their work. Um, I'm working with uh, a guy called Kilian Jaune, who's one of the best athletes in the world. On an athlete climate Academy, which is all about getting science and climate science to athletes, um, around the world as well. So they can start talking about it more, but it's translation service is what I basically am.
0: That's awesome, man. And you said athlete climate science. What exactly is that? What exactly does that entail?
1: So I, I approached a guy called Kilian Jornet uh, about nine months ago, and he is by far the best athlete in the world, um, to intent purposes. He's a he's an ultra runner and a, a ski mountaineer from um, from Catalonia, but now he lives in Norway. And he started a foundation. There's a big movement in in the outdoor community. I'm a mountain leader and alpinist as well, and I spend a lot of my time in the outdoors and. I was like, what's a, an audience that we haven't got to yet to talk about science, especially talking about climate science. I love talking about astronomy, but the sun's been there 5 billion years and it'll be there 5 billion years more. And, you know, this it's moving on a slow timescale. The thing that's, that I want to talk about now is, is climate science. And the audience we found is athletes. They've got, you know, Olympics are on at the moment. They, they've got such big followings of people, but quite often, if they're not versed in the science, they don't understand the science or haven't looked into it, then they don't want to talk about climate science. They don't want to talk about um, how global warming affects the planet. So me and Killian about nine months ago started working on the Athlete Climate Academy, which is there to support athletes um, in... Learning about climate science. So literally, we do. I do many lessons on the last five billion years of our climate, or how our atmosphere works, or how we create pla- how we create um, clothing like this from plastics, and how that affects uh, the microfibers in the oceans and that kind of stuff. So we it's a new audience to try and talk about uh, climate science with, but they've got such big following. Killian's got like over a million followers himself, and you know all these other athletes will have similar followings and people look up to them you know we we look at when we look up to people we listen to them we, li- we trust them and what they have to say so if if they can start talking about climate science as well then that's a good job
0: yeah 100 percent. we do almost uh romanticize and um and and uh famous and and you put this almost like yeah. you put this almost like a hero heroic heroicism inside of like people like lebron james and stuff and that's why in the united states they are allowed to talk yeah. about when they start talking about politics it makes social movements and things like that
1: yeah. um, so when you get people At the th- nba is so good for that yeah for sure i was, yeah. I, was a, I was a basketball player from i remember going to i got relatives in nebraska i got cousins out there and um i remember going there when i was 10 years old and they were bouncing a, a ball and i was like what is this game I need to to know more about it, and picked it up when I was ten, and then played for in college and university, and for club basketball all my life, and I loved it. So I followed the NBA since I was a kid, and when, and I'm I'm so pleased when you get these other other um, leagues that are kind of stifling what you can talk about, and then you get the NBA that's like, yeah, let's let's talk about it all because um, it, it matters, you know. And LeBron is just is wonderful in that, but like. All the basketball players—they've all got stuff to to say—and the NBA, I feel, lets them do it.
0: And the NBA too is the most diverse ethnically, ethnically um, diverse uh, organization in the United States. I mean, you can argue that the uh, NHL is because of Canada kind of shares it with us, but uh, for the NBA to have. I don't know how many, four or five, maybe three or four, the top players in the world being from other countries. There's so many people from (laughs) other countries playing within the NBA. You don't just see that in in sports like uh, the NFL with football. Um, You occasionally see older football for the way you guys say it, or soccer players come over and play in the MLS. But very rarely do you see it like you see it in the NBA where the best players in the world come play in the NBA. And so to go back to athlete um, climate change, science. Could you talk about some of the things you talk about in that? Like you said, like dive into what you guys were talking about, how you were talking about how we make plastic to make our clothes. I have no idea what that's about. And also um, just give your little mini snippet of the 5 billion climates until now, you know?
1: Yeah. So just to to pick one of those out, you know, that I'd let you just one of the reasons one of, I came from a meeting where I signed a contract to um to come on with these guys with Rab as um uh, as a as an athlete for them as an ambassador. Um in the clothing, in couldn't they make clothing and outdoor clothing which has to stand up to like like Rab ambassadors and athletes, they climb Everest, they they climb the world's biggest peaks and, and whatever else and they have to have clothing that um that supports them, that is not compromised, that's like is warm, is good to go. Um, And so I'm working with them. They're on a route to become climate neutral and go to net zero, um, as few carbon emissions as, as possible. And so we're working on like, how do we talk about climate science within the outdoor industry and with... And one of the big things is, you know, 4% of all crude oil comes out of the ground each year is used to create plastics of some sort. Um, We get natural polymers, uh, which is a a string of molecules that you can make stuff from, from silk, from wood, from a bunch of different things that we used to use to make things with. And then about a hundred years ago, we, we realized that we can make synthetic versions of those. We can make it we can make synthetic polymers um, from crude oil. Uh, so they started making a long time ago Bakelite and then we started making polyester and um, PET that they make um, water bottles from and, and Coca-Cola bottles and the likes. So we started creating plastic and I, I think plastic's just such a wonderful material. It's durable, it's long lasting, it's, it's just great, you can make anything from it. The trouble is we've been using it for stuff that you can... That you're supposed to throw away and it's like we made this material that lasts forever and then we started making things from it that you have to throw away after one use and I was like that doesn't really make sense and then the thing that we found out um fairly recently one of my friends is a a leading scientist on on the the idea of microfiber plastics so we found that in these tops for example when you start washing them, they, they knitted and woven in, in, in a way that little tiny fibers called microfibers less than five millimeters in, in length. Um, I think it's on the order around, I'm, I might the fact wrong, but I think it's around nine million microfibers come off of uh, these in each wash, right? Uh, more so when you first start washing them and it starts to tail off after that. But every time you put polyester, which I think that this is made of, in the wash, microfibers, little tiny bits of plastic will come off and go into the water system and then down into the rivers and down into the ocean. And um, it's the a lot of the plastic that's in the ocean isn't big plastic bottles and other stuff. It's these little tiny microfibers that are less than five millimeters. And how do you go about getting those back at the ocean? It's nigh on impossible. Um, So I've been working with clothing companies and stuff to say like, how do we move from plastics or to something else? Or like do we change from polyester fleece to bamboo fleece? The trouble with that then is that bamboo and cotton is very impactful in the environment because it takes a lot of water and a lot of energy to to create cotton. Like there's no crop on the planet that uses more insecticides and pesticides than cotton. So it's not as if you're going from one thing that pollutes the environment to to a more natural one that's good you're just trading off one kind of pollution for another. It's really complicated, but that's yeah. the, the being open and transparent is a good thing. I think.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I think it is too. And that's fascinating when you say like that. Well, not fascinating in a good way, but you say every wash, these little tiny microfires. because I think when we think about clean up the ocean, we think about the, the, um, the six pack uh, plastics that choke turtles. Mm -hmm. And we think about the straws and things like that, but we don't really think about those nano fibers and those really small fibers. And I think people need to be more transparent with the way they're thinking about creating things. And a a big problem with it, I agree though, is it, it costs a lot of money to go more green, right? so big corporations who are more invested in the money uh, or who are all invested in the money, they don't want to change the way they do. Because think about like these, these clothing companies, like how much they're saving on making these plastic shirts. I mean, these shirts out of plastic instead of changing to another more um, accessible, greener way of, of doing so. And, and when you say that it's going in the oceans, it, then you would also think it's probably going in the river systems and the, and the lakes too. Are we ingesting these nanoplastics while, through our um, water systems? Yes. Yeah, we are? That's got to be harmful <laughs> it's the short us. answer? That is the great answer.
1: <laughs> so we don't know yeah. um, how harmful it is to us. What we're finding is that we ingest in the region of a, a credit card's worth of microplastics um, every week so uh it goes through your system and we don't know what that does um we had a in the athlete climate academy we had a guy called max Romy come through who works in alaska um does big beach cleans and is a wonderful painter and artist and talk about this at, at length and and you know one of the things that he said that stuck with me is that plastic doesn't um, break up it it doesn't break down it breaks up So we're on a a ticking clock when it comes to like these plastic bottles and the the six-pack things that you were talking about and everything else. Plastic doesn't go away. It just, over time, just gradually breaks down less and less and less into these microfibers into these little tiny microplastics. And it's really easy to pick up a plastic bottle. It's not very easy to pick up a plastic bottle's worth of microplastics. So when it breaks up and goes into the environment and leaches into our river systems and it ends up in the fish that we eat and it ends up in the, the water that we consume, we are not sure what chemicals leach out of that and will affect our bodies. So we're we're kind of in this ignorant bliss at the moment where we're like, well, plastic is sterile. It doesn't do anything. We recently learned about, um, I think it's BPA. Um, what well, we used to make water bottles from which we yeah, found leach leach chemicals into our water, and then we were like we don 't want to use that anymore for a lot of stuff we, you know we 're just not sure um how it 's going to affect us, but we I, we know that we, we're we 're eating it they 're starting to find plastics in things like placenta and and, and some really places that you don 't really want to see it, so we 're not sure, but there 's more science to be done
0: we know too, I took a environmental science class here. Couple semesters ago, um, and I was it was my science credit. But uh, we know that um, these BPAs and these chemicals in these plastics are also causing, or they, they cause um, decrease in testosterone in men and increased production of prolactin and estrogen. And it also in frogs it changes the male frogs. The pesticides and these these chemicals change the male frogs to female, or they can change them through. Yeah, no it's crazy. Yeah, it was it was crazy, and so we're wondering if that has an effect on humans because we know that there is a decrease in testosterone in men going along right now. And we do know that it does cause these, the BPA, especially in, in other certain products and plastics cause a increase in estrogen and prolactin in men. And I feel like that's dangerous. Well, we know it's dangerous for health and well being, while also it's, we don't know what the long-term effects of it look like on a species. You know, I think we think of very like, yep our kids and our kids' kids, but we don't think of it like a, a thousand, hundred thousand year long species that's going to continue to, to grow. Right.
1: Yeah. Cause plastics haven't been around that long. Like it's a hundred years since we, since we first started making them. Um, and it, you know, it's only really been since the '90s that we started like really mass producing them. Half of all the plastics we've ever created came—I'm th- pretty sure it's from 2015 until now. We like doubled the amount of plastic that we have. It's eight million tons of plastic every single year goes into our our oceans, and like you say, we're just not sure. It, it might be fine. It might be okay, but we don't know. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. Do you think that?
0: because like humans are so um, driven on innovation and so creative, do you think they'll be able to create a chemical in the future or a component in the future that will be able to break down um, plastic in a non micro manner way and actually get rid of it?
1: There's a lot of talk about that, about can we create a bacteria that chomps through, through plastic? Um, can we create something that, uh, can we create a way that turns it into something else? Can we collect it back up and turn it into bricks and then make houses from it? Can we do all these different things? I've got a 3D printer over here that uses PLA, which is a um, polylactic acid, which is from cornstarch. Can we start creating plastics that are, in a, that are more natural? I think you're right. I think humans are very, very creative and there's a science. We, we can science our way out of it. But the the, the, the world ecosystem and the way that everything works together is so complicated. There's the answers are also going to be complicated as well. Um, so one thing that kept coming up in the Athlete Climate Academy time and time again, when we talked about climate, when we talked about um, the solutions to it, activism, plastics, it kept coming back to, there's not going to be one silver bullet. It needs to be a little bit of everything to, to mitigate the, the, what we're seeing going into the future—it's
0: fascinating too. What you say about um, the ecosystem and the the world as we know it is so complex. Like I was listening to a podcast not too long ago, and we were—it was listening. It was listening. It was like talking about humans believe themselves to be the most advanced species and everything, yet it, or the only species to be conscious, to be uh, intelligent, or severe intelligence, and. Um, it started talking about how plants and trees, especially, they, they change instead of moving because they can't move away from harm, they change their biochemistry to protect themselves. And they produce these yeah. these toxins that in some humans, I mean, they, they cause psychedelic effects in humans. They cause um, they cause uh, certain bees to act a certain way so that they pollinate them. And then you think about that and you see how complex the earth is and, and it makes you wonder like, is is the is the damage that we're doing because we won't stop it and let the earth reheal or, or like understand the way that the world works in natural selection and things like that? Or can we mitigate what we're doing and also help the earth with our uh, non, non-natural remedies, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think that we think we're the most intelligent species because we're measuring that intelligence by what we know, right? Like my, my dissertation in university was super string theory, um, which is the idea that, um, everything vibrates in 11 dimensions rather than the three plus one that we're used to, which is three spatial in one time. And we don't, we can't fathom more dimensions because we exist in three mm-hmm. and we can't fathom other types of intelligence because we exist within our own brains and um and our own intelligence so you're right like other animals like there's whole communities of of animals or whether ants or bees or, or whatever that communicate through pheromones and communicate through like like one part of the, the the hive will know what the other part of the hive is thinking and it's like how the hell does that work because we can't do that so yeah we think that we're intelligent but it's only within our own measure there are so many other organisms and in fact uh, unfortunately we're affecting all of them like the the biodiversity loss that we are seeing at the moment is you know we we concentrate on climate and what's happening in the atmosphere but you know the majority of the warming that we've seen over the last 20 years or more has been sucked up by the oceans like it's over 90% of of all the warming has just been gone into the oceans the the carbon dioxide has been sucked up by the ocean as well um, making it more acidic and 99 percent of the living space on the planet is in the oceans we don't know what's it was we've explored five percent of it we don't know what lives <laughs> lives in there so yeah we are pretty intelligent but there's a limit to it
0: i talked to a i don't want to buy hip hop science MD is his name, but he, so he's like a science communicator who does it through hip hop. Anyway, yeah. 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 I've been so on he show. And he, um, so we were talking about what's scarier floating away in space or floating oh, like down in the ocean. Oh. And now it's Good. probably space because you have no way of, of getting, um, like no way of talking to like finding anybody ever, but dude, I am so afraid of the ocean, like the ocean. Like if you really think about like everything that we don't know about the ocean, it freaks you out because like not knowing about space makes sense. Cause we don't live, we don't have it right in our fingertips. Right. We don't, we don't live right near, we don't live near. um, Can't think of the farthest star starts with a B can't think of it, but um, we don't live near all those millions and millions of galaxies away, you know, or stars but we do live right near beaches and oceans, and we still have yeah. no idea what it going going on down there. And it it, it really is freaky to think about. Um, what do you think? That it's just a stupid question. What do you think? What's scary, space or the ocean?
1: So I think. Where are you? Where are you currently based? Where yeah. where's your?
0: So I I'm from Las Vegas. If you know where that is in, in the okay. United States, and then yeah, I, yeah. I go to. So I'm a, I'm a senior in college up in Portland, Oregon.
1: Okay. So Portland's pretty near the ocean, but you know, for the, for the vast majority of Americans, they live closer to space than they do to the ocean. Like everyone in is 50, 60 miles up and you're in space. Yeah. You can, you can live further than that from the ocean easy, but also in space, there's only ever one atmosphere difference. So we currently live under one atmosphere, right. Of pressure. And, um, that's how we, how we measure pressure, so when you go into space, there are zero atmospheres of pressure, so there 's nothing to breathe there 's pretty much a, a vacuum um, However, you go under the the water and you go one meter down and you 're under two atmospheres, and you go down further and further, you go three four five, and it builds up. that scares me more like it 's much easier to build a something to go into space because there's one atmosphere difference than it is to go to the bottom of the ocean because there's like hundreds of atmospheres difference. That pressure just like freaks me out.
0: Yeah, I, I was watching a podcast of Joe Rogan. He had an str- str- uh not an astronomer, but an astronaut—on who lived underneath the okay. ocean for I don't two weeks, I think. And they lived in like this wow. thing, and you would like swim under, and then you'd be in like a swimming pool. And yeah, yeah. Come out, and he was talking about how like they had to like slowly come up because of, like the pressure and the bends and things like that. He's like, it's it's almost like slowly opening a shook up can. But he was also yeah. talking about how he one night he was going to the bathroom and a shark like or something like swam right by him. Oh, so. uh, and it's like not only is it scary because of the different atmospheric pressure, but it's also scary because do we really know what lives down there? Like we know the bigger animals, I believe, but we really don't have any clue what species lives down there.
1: No. No. Five percent of the ocean we've explored and that's that's it. Um, but you know also mine, sharks swim at X miles per hour. Um, you know, not a lot. Uh, you can, I just, um, was helping out on a a paper about space debris and the future of of trash in space. And you get a a grain of dust traveling at 75,000 mile an hour, which, you know, you do in orbit. I can do some damage. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, um, we, and, and in fact that, that, that whole thing was, was all about how do we learn from what we've done in the oceans and how we've trashed the oceans? How do we transfer that knowledge into space then? Um, You know, there's less species that live up in space, obviously, but the amount of the way that we use it for commercial purposes, we're slowly starting to have that in space as well. So there's a lot we can learn from being in the ocean. Like when Jacques Cousteau first kind of put those aquanauts living um places in and started using it we said it again more of an insight but you know more people have set foot on the moon than have ever been down to the the bottom of the mariana trench so yeah we don't know i'm still team space though
0: yeah yeah space is yeah i love space because it's it it makes you wonder about the impossible more like not really the, the ocean does too but space because it's like you can really see your smallness when you look up in the space yeah. and your insignificance and it may, but then you could also feel like your place in the universe. And I have this question because you said you wrote your dissertation on super strength theory. Where does consciousness mm, yeah. fit into that theory?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, um, I think at best agnostic when it comes to religion, um, Because I don't think that we can ever say that we just don't know all the answers, right? Like, um, I don't think that there's a a grand being who created everything. I don't think there's a grand design. I think nature trumps a lot of time. What any designer could actually do, um, when it comes to evolution and the likes, um, it's, uh, I, I enjoy being very, very insignificant in a, in a universe that doesn't care about me. Um, I take solace in that. That's, however much I mess up, it doesn't matter. Like I really want to write a show all about why I don't care about climate change because the earth will continue to live on for another 5 billion years. Won't care about humans. Yeah. <laughs> It'll just carry on. Like it's humans that need to care about climate change, not the bloody earth. So yeah, I, I, I'm consciousness is a, is a weird one. Um, I'm very thankful that I have, what we perceive as consciousness. Um, But I don't think, I think it's random. I think that we are, personally, I think we are specks of dust that exist on a little larger speck of dust um, in the vast cosmos. But I like that. Like you say, it humbles me. I think it makes me a better person.
0: It's a weird one. I have a lot of friends who are super religious and I have a lot of friends who are super against religion. And I would say I fall... Full, I'm, I call myself religious, right? And I wear a cross because my family's religious and I, not to say I don't have doubt or anything, but I like the way that religion lets me live my life and it also lets me live yep. in more positive and for other people too. And it's a, it's a good way to have and believe in something, right? And, but I also, it science and and the whole sphere of, it doesn't make me not think, you know? I have these yeah. ranging philosophical existential meanings of life moments in my in 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 my life where i just oh panic you know and then but what makes me do feel solace like you said it makes me feel calm and humble is that when you can understand that regardless if you want to be here or if you wanted to be here if you if you could decide that life doesn't matter and you could pick if you wanted to be here or not you didn't have that choice right you are here yes the only the only like plastic the only way is up right and 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 i choose to be positive and have meaning my meaning be with other people and make their lives better because you know What's scarier than the existential angst of life in the universe is that how close you are to the entire population of the humans. Like, if you really think about it, everyone knows probably hundred people plus. And if you're negative yeah. to those hundred people, and then those people know a hundred people, and you have ten thousand people, and then a million, and then and then the world, right?
1: Yep.
0: Um, If you're negative, that spreads to the whole world faster than you can imagine, right? And the same thing goes to yeah. the positivity and good energy. And so I'm a big believer in energy and 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 innovating up, right? And so that's the way I find meaning I kind of find. But consciousness is one of those things that freaks me out because you're sitting here and you're thinking about your hands, and I'm sitting here thinking about talking <laughs> to you, and I'm sitting here thinking about myself and myself's place, and it doesn't really make sense, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I my when I started college, which is the upper end of high school for, for you guys, it was like 16, 17. Um, I took a philosophy class and the first, one of the first things they said was, what is this? And it was a table. Um, and they said, but does this table really exist? And I was like, I'm done. I'm, I kind of wandered out. I was like, I can't think about that kind of thing. And then over time, there's a couple types of people in the world the people who hear those big deep questions and like turn into them and then there's people who turn away from them and i'm so glad that i ended up going on a bit of a journey of those following two years into university with astronomy i remember my my lecturer saying that before the big bang there wasn't anything not even time or space and i turned into that question rather than away from it um and it still kind of like blows my mind those those types of those types of statements and questions, but I'm so glad that I, I now think deeper about things. I spend time actively thinking in a, in a philosophical way about stuff. If someone challenges me on a a view I have, I'll spend the time either, I'll spend time thinking about it so I can either like firm it up and make it stronger or that that'll come down. And that view that I had for 20 years becomes a view that I no longer hold. You know, there's so many times I've had views that I thought were were true. Someone's challenged me on it and I've realized that view was wrong and I've changed. And I think that that's, that's all we can do when, you know, you asked a big question and you sit and and actively think about it. Um, you might not come up with the answer. Like we still, uh, Stephen Hawking famously said to that question of what was there before the big bang. He said, you're not allowed to ask that question (laughs) because we just, we don't know. Um, but it's good to think about those kind of questions.
0: Um, it's, I can't stop thinking of those questions. My, my, I, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a double major po- politics and government and philosophy in college. I'm going to law school next year. Well, so that's like my path, but I, uh, dude, I can't like, I literally like have these philosophical conversations with myself all the time. But what you, you're talking about time and space. And I know, you know, about time and space because you you've studied them so let's get into a little bit of time because time freaks me out because we don't really understand time that's the fourth dimension correct yep and so we live forward right and you can live Mm -hmm. this is the i think that you can live back if you think about where you were at one time right and so what freaks me out about time is i it's a little bit indulging in the in the uh what the devil's lettuce? And I was sitting there talking to my girlfriend. I was like, what if time. So like, think about my grandfather who passed away. Right. It, he, but he, I remember him. Like I remember spending time with him. And, and if you, if you somehow f- had a time machine and went back to that moment, that moment will have always existed no matter where mm-hmm. you go, because, because it did exist. Right. And so, and that yeah. made me think about everybody that I know that have passed away they existed no matter what time or space you go to. That you can't say that forward, but you can always say that back. So what freaks me out about that is that, that means that the people you love and yourself will always exist when in that specific time in that specific range of atoms, no matter where it is yeah. in the future past or in space, That if that time in that area exists, that will, you will always exist there. And so that made me think that that means everybody exists all the time. And that means that you don't exist all the time. And then I just sat down and I couldn't think about it anymore. (laughs) So what do you think about that hypothesis and how about how time in the past and forward there's, if, if a moment existed, it will always exist.
1: There's There's a bit of a movement in the States at the moment for using things like psychedelics to cure, um, angst and depression and things like that i'd recommend not taking those. because if you if you're freaking out about that now that, that's a genuinely like I, i'm quite excited about what, what they're doing with drugs in the states and, and finding new ways they to mental health. yes very much so um however yeah the the idea of of time i love what's going on in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the moment with all that, um, they're tackling some big questions and I wrote a paper in, in university. It was actually the end of my dissertation was all about string theory and the idea that our universe is like a loaf of bread that we call the bulk and every universe is a slice of bread in that bulk. And um, those are all higher dimensions that are larger, called brains, um, B-R-A-N-E-S. And my dissertation was on what if those brains touch and cause a cyclical Big Bang. Um, Since then, other scientists have, I'm sure I wasn't the first, and I'm definitely not the last to think about that kind of thing. But that cyclic universe, where currently our universe is expanding, we don't really understand why it's expanding we call it dark energy because we don't understand anything. Scientists don't know; they call it dark. So we got dark energy and dark matter. The vast the majority, like and black holes. Well, we don't know, so it's black. <laughs> um, so the idea is that um, you know you have an, a, a, an expanding universe that's that's accelerating, and that's the thing we don't understand: is why it's accelerating. Um think something of like an anti-gravity dark energy doing that. But my my thesis was, what if there's a a universe right next to us that is getting closer to us, that is pulling on our universe and accelerates it towards that? I was a bachelor's, man. I'm not like, I I didn't understand the physics properly and everything, but that idea of that cyclic universe then meant that you'd have another Big Bang and another Big Bang. Because even if you believe that 14 billion years ago, there was a Big Bang, which is the scientific consensus... What was before that? And if there was another one in another cycle, would it create your grandfather and you and me in the same way? Or is it random and chaotic? Chaos within science doesn't mean randomness. It just, it means chaos. So would you get that those cycles of time? Or would you get branched timelines like in the MCU?
0: This is the no argument. Idea this is the argument uh, for the philosophical argument for determinism that if it is the case that it would always create what's happening right now, then you have no free will because everything was supposed to happen, happened. Right. And actually a really nice philosophical argument happened in the sitcom scrubs in the season three he was, it was a butterfly flapped its wings a different way. And the first time everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And then the patient died right in surgery. And then the flip side, the the butterfly flapped its wings on the other way. The best thing that could have happened happened and everyone had a great day and the patient still died in surgery. And so it's that it's the exact same thing happened, but in a different way, right? You you end up with the, the same result on a different path. And so, it's that age-old question, the butterfly effect. Does the butterfly effect affect the path but not the, the destination? Or does it affect everything including the destination? So like you said, if that cyclical bang continues to happen, is that, is that different multi-universes every single time or is it the exact same universe every time millions upon trillions of times? Which is, yeah. I don't know which one's I mean- scary
1: yeah I, well, what we do know is that there's a there's a set amount of i think it's, it's like eleven or fourteen physical features of our universe that have to be the same for our universe to exist in the way that it does i can 't remember the exact number but there's like ten eleven fourteen um physical constants the way that an electron spins the 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 weight of a of a baryon that kind of stuff um that i can 't remember completely but we know that those constants have to be like that for our universe to exist in the way that it does for for stars to exist for galaxies to to coalesce those kind of things gravity has to have a constant and it has to be the same otherwise you know if gravity was a little bit weaker a sun the sun wouldn't wouldn't start to form if um if new uh If the strong nuclear force or the weak nuclear force were different, then you wouldn't have nuclear fusion in the way that you do. And there's a within the sun, there's something called hydrostatic equilibrium, which means that gravity pulls it in just so, and nuclear fusion pushes it out just so. So you get this equilibrium with those constants being different. You wouldn't, you perhaps wouldn't get that. So what we do know is that there's a certain set of physical constants that we have to have to create our universe. But are there other constants i have no idea well what
0: breaks my mind down into little pieces is when we think about these constants and that humans are basically the they're made out of the four elements that everything's made out of in our universe right carbon hydrogen i can't remember the other
1: many many definitely made that our units runs on four um uh four I can't even remember the, the name of it. physical properties is strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, um, electromagnetism and gravity. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the, the four things that, that make up all the, man, I can't remember the name of it, but the four physical properties of our universe.
0: Yeah. And so when humans are made and, and we're made out of, we're carbon life based life. That's what they call us. Right. Yes. And, but what like f- freaks me out and what I, where I start believing in something higher than me, that's just who knows what that means but is the um the, the idea of creativity and innovation is that we create our own existence and like this is why I kind of struggles with determinism too because i understand determinism and why it would work but it also don't understand why we love music so much and why we create beautiful pieces of art to stare at you know and why something that you yeah. can like see breaks you down and you could probably go all the way to chemicals but it doesn't it doesn't make sense on why we change our environment as much as the environment changes itself. Right. That is, it doesn't answer that question because no matter what you, you ask, no matter what you say, humans have made an impact. Like we can talk about climate change for one humans have made an impact on our environment. And why is that the case in a universe that should be cyclical? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And yeah, we humans, the, these, few other life forms that have, have changed. I mean, that's pretty much, that's quite narcissistic to, to say that humans have, have changed the earth more than any of the, um, for a fact, we, we don't know. They could have been, there's been a bunch of different, um, uh, earth altering events and mass extinctions. The that's dinosaurs right. were the smallest of, uh, of a lot of them. You know, there were, there were bunches of others that wiped out 95, 99% of life. um, we don't know what what those creatures were like so i'll, I'll just say humans have changed the earth uh, a lot but does that make a difference like you know we are we're here for a short amount of time we've been around you know as humans um 20,000 years or so like you know we haven 't been around that long in the in the the calendar of the the Earth uh, that runs from January to December. Humans turned up at a few minutes to midnight on new year 's eve so yeah we, we haven 't been here that long so to suggest that we we can change our planet so much that I often think like if we if humans disappear or face the Earth tomorrow, I need to find that I was doing a bit of research on how long it would take the Earth to completely recycle us. And all the things that's, that humans ever created, how long would that take to disappear? Because it will, like plate tectonics are such that even the, the continents will recycle. So we'll we'll be wiped off the face of the earth at some point or other. Oh, yeah, um, sure. So to say, say we've, we, we have changed the earth, no end, the earth will exist after us, for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it makes you feel at home when you believe that the earth is our home and that we're here. We get to be here, right? We get to, we get to exist on this magical planet with all these other living creatures and, and love and, and laugh and, and have these converse in-depth conversations. All right. I got to ask, we got to break down the 11 dimensions that you were talking about. Cause I only know four, <laughs> so we have to do it. Blow my mind. If I can't get there intellectually, I'll try my best.
1: Yeah. It's been a while since I, since I did any string theory, but, um, at the time when I, when I was doing it the there was a, a few different versions of string theory, and the one I was looking at was the the math so the idea of string theory is that the universe is made up of atoms. An atom is called an atom because we thought it was the smallest thing that could exist. Um, then we found out that atoms were made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And then we found out that those protons, neutrons, and electrons are made up of quarks. And the, and the idea of string theory is, is quarks are made up of tiny vibrating strands of energy called strings. And some of those strings are with a, an closed loop that are connected to our universe and some of them are open and in a circle that are not connected to our universe and the only way the math works for string theory is that if we have 11 dimensions in this one I was studying others need more dimensions others need less but for the math to work those little vibrating strands of energy which are so small that if an atom was the size of our solar system, one of those strands of energy would be the size of a tree. That's how small we're talking. But it's quite an elegant theory because the idea is that, like a violin, as you as different lengths and thicknesses of that of those strings vibrate in different ways, they create different um, elements and different. It could be a, an electron, it could be a proton or, or whatever, different kinds of quarks. So it's a really elegant solution, but it can't be tested because those strings are so small. You need such high energies of particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider over here in um, in Europe or Fermilab over there in the States. You just can't test for things that small currently. So the only way we know how to test it is through the math and the math demands that these little strands of energy they, they vibrate not only in three dimensions but in 11 dimensions and whether those dimensions are very small and curled up so on is a great um, documentary all about it by brian green um called the elegant universe and it's a book and he talks about it as a an ant walking along uh uh a power line or a, a telephone line. Um, from far away, it looks like that ant is walking along one dimension, walking along a line. But from the ant's perspective, the ant can actually walk all the way around it in a circle. So the ant can walk back and forth, but also fully around. So that ant gets an extra dimension because it's so small. So in our own universe, if you were that small or smaller, if you were the size of an atom, do you have extra universes to? Uh, sorry, extra dimensions to play around in? Do you end up with another one that you can go around? Do you end up with another one you can walk back and forth? Similarly, on a massive scale, if you were the size of a galaxy, if you were the size of, you know, um, a whole arm of galaxies, do you get an extra dimension to play in those membranes, those really big ones? So, we don't know in those eleven dimensions if they're very, very tiny and wrapped all together like the, the ant on a telephone line or if they're absolutely huge, like the slices of bread that we talked about, um, in the bulk, which just not sure.
0: That's so crazy to think about. Like, <laughs> sorry, no, no, it's good. It's good. I love when my mind is just blown. Cause he's just like, you sit here and you're like, you know what i'm gonna make a sandwich today and then you just think about the universe and and that yeah. dimensions could be either as small as they could be or as large as you can't even imagine infinite almost yeah. so
1: think about it's a great it's, i think it's an old victorian book called flat world um don't if you've ever read it it's a very kind of philosophical book and it's the idea of i'll probably butcher the story but uh there's a a, a world of two dimensional beings. So dimensions that only exist in, in back and forth and left and right, forward, backwards, left and right. And then one day uh, within this world, a three dimensional object appears. Um, And you imagine being in a two dimensional world and you can see everything kind of like on this two dimensional plane and imagine a, a, a sphere then was to, to float through your two dimensions. What would that look like? Well, it would look like a point to begin with so in the in this book it's been a long time since i've read it but like um our, our protagonist is kind of like looking and out of nowhere a little point appears and then slowly that point starts to grow and grow and grow and starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then it gets to a certain size and then it starts getting less and less and less and less and less, and less. It comes down right to a point again and disappears in our three-dimensional world we can understand that a sphere passing through a two-dimensional world will look like a point to begin with and then it'll grow until it gets to the the equator and then it'll start to shrink again until it ends up at a point and disappears again. So in our three-dimensional world, plus time, what would a four-dimensional object floating through our three dimensions look like? Blows my
0: mind. Would it look like... It shows like, let's say I'm sitting here. It shows up here, and then it shows up here again 30 years from now, like that.
1: Yeah, could be. Like, there's some there's some great stuff out there on like four dimensional square, four dimensional cubes, and and that kind of stuff. There's some good work going on in, in math all about it. But yeah, it, it's just it, we we can't comprehend it because we we exist in three dimensions, right? like the two dimensional flat worlds. Uh, characters can't fathom what a sphere looks like yeah
0: exactly do we know if the fourth dimension only moves forward
1: oh yeah that goes back to like the 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 arrow of time and pretty sure hawking did hawking might have even come up with the arrow of time um but the idea that the time only flows flows forward and doesn't flow backwards and you can slow time you can you can you can play with time. The idea of twin, like if you close to a black hole, time moves slower near massive massive objects. It moves slower if you move in fast. The idea of the twin paradox that um, I don't know if you heard it. The yeah, yeah. you send one one twin it's off big, at the yeah. close to the speed of light, and they come back, and they've aged less than the one here on Earth. So you can slow time, but the the idea of the arrow of time is that you can never reverse it. At all. So you'd you'd imagine that all dimensions all flow in the same way, forwards in time. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what blows my mind is you don't have to be going that fast to change time. Like if you put if you put a watch that started at on twins at birth who were born at the exact same time, right? And as soon as they're born, you start it. You come back ten years, they're so many different times on those watches. Like those watches are so different yeah. in time. And that's freaky because like, because like somebody maybe rode in a, in a car and went 80 miles per hour and somebody walked, you know, and the time is different. Yeah. And that freaks me out because like, how old am I really? You know, we don't really know. We all, we started zero when we're really nine months. That's also another thing that blows my mind. But the weird thing about time is, is that you, you never really know because where we live 3D lives but you never really know at what point you're living you know because like even even if you're talking to somebody the time might flow differently for you guys from where you're at specifically in the universe i don't want to talk yeah. about it it blows my mind <laughs>
1: Well, we're we're all time travelers in in one sense. Whenever we catch a plane, we're further away from the mass of the Earth, so time moves a little bit slower. But you're on a plane going at 550 mile an hour, so time moves a little bit faster. If we didn't know about the idea of relativity and um, we didn't know that time moves slowly for around massive objects and things move fast, GPS wouldn't work. Like, we literally have to factor in special relativity for GPS satellites to work because they move at different speeds. They move at different parts, like different parts of the planet. So it would be off by a few meters every single day. And that builds up, right? So Einstein's calculations on special relativity, we have to factor that in to GPSs. it's one of the reasons we know his stuff works um, is because we literally use it every single day on our phones, on Google maps.
0: Yeah. And the weird thing is they kind of made up time. Like we, we used the, obviously the rotation of the earth as our own specific time. But if you're in space, that that time's not the same. Right. Because like, what even is time? Like we think about time as like ticking clock, but we don't in years and days. And, but that's not really what time is. You know?
1: It kind of blew, I find it's one of the things I pick up on all the time in things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, when, Thor who's from like Asgard talks about days and you're like, you don't have days. You don't have like, if you're comparing like years and days, a year is like how long it takes us to go under our, our sun, our star. So someone from a different solar system doesn't have, maybe they'll have their own version of a, a year, but it definitely doesn't correspond to my version because time, what we colloquially call time is how we measure things relative to each other. So we've broken down, um, a year. It's like, that's how long it takes us to go around the sun. And then we've broken down that into months and we've broken down that into weeks and that. in. so uh, now like things like you're aware of atomic clocks. Now we, we, we measure seconds differently and we measure everything a little bit differently and we'll get better at it over time. Um, (laughs) But yeah, we literally, like time doesn't mean anything. It's just how we measure stuff, right?
0: Yeah. We all know what it is and we, we all know what it is and we correlate it with death, right? That's the reason we correlate with time. The reason you do yeah. something is because you know where the time is for you stopped, right? We, we like you said, yeah. we colloquially talk about time because we, 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 we use time as a relative sentence for how long you have until you have no time. Even yeah. though time exists, time and space exist beyond our little human brains. We, we are like a, it's like, you know, how like when you're, when you pull a, like a drink out of the, out of a cooler and there's still all that stuff in the cooler, but, and you put the, the drink down and it's cold and it's dripping. We're like not even, we're like the smallest drop of water on that can <laughs> when there's like an entire three coolers sitting over there, you know,
1: it's. Yeah, we are, like I said, I'm humbled and I take solace in the fact that I'm an insignificant little creature on a speck of dust that orbits a, a nuclear power station. Um, and, you know, since a bunch of my buddies who who I, did, I was at university with have gone off to study ex, extrasolar planets, you know, we, we're now finding that we, we are a speck of dust going around a, a little star and... More often than not, now we're finding that other other stars within our galaxy will have Earth-sized planets around them, and around half of the half of them should. Um, we're finding that those extrasolar planets could harbour life. Um, Carl Sagan famously said, "If there's not if there isn't life elsewhere in the universe, then it's an awful waste of space." Um, we're up at over two and a half thousand solar planets, uh, exoplanets that we found so far, and we're just finding more and more and more. Um, it 's an exciting time to to think about our position in the universe because we 're finding now that that will also be relative to other people 's positions in the universe as well
0: what do you think the closest plan to have life is how far away so
1: our, our, our closest star is four light years if we travel at the speed of light which obviously we can 't um, half a century um, so I I have conversations with friends about about things like aliens and they exist. uh, They will, we'll we'll find them at some point. I don't think that they are flying around, picking up farmers from, you know, the the deep South in in America. Darn. Um, But I do think like we'll find, I think we'll find um, bacterial life uh, microbes on Mars before long. I think we'll find them on Europa. We'll find, and technically that's, easy. That's actually trust real life. Um, the idea that that I find it difficult to argue with religious people sometimes on the uniqueness of the earth, because it is freaky that we've ended up on a a rock that has not only, um, solid water, but liquid water and gas all at the same time. We have a magnetic field, which shields us from all the harmful rays that come from the sun, or most of them, we have a moon that's the fifth largest in the solar system, like the largest compared to its host body that of, of any of the planets that creates tides that um, helps uh, to drive evolution and, and life. All these we we have a, a single sun that or single star that isn't the norm. Stars often come as like binaries or or, or triplets. There's a lot of like things fell into place for, Earth, for life to exist, but the chances of that ha- not happening elsewhere is like, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. There's, there's, there's billions of stars in our galaxy alone. There's billions of galaxies in the universe. It's going to happen, happen elsewhere. Just like by rolls of the dice, it'll yeah. happen. So there is alien life. We will, I don't know if we will find it ever.
0: There's definitely alien life. I like the uh, there's there's this, there's a story um, to go back to what you're saying. It's hard to argue with religious people too because I think it that's all goes back to humans' curiosity, the curiosity of humans. And I like the story it goes this man. There's a man obsessed with f- having all the answers, and he. He basically builds himself up. This is like in the future, right? And he makes himself so consciousness can't be depleted. And he's like, he's like almost like an AI being. And they, they travel the entire universe. And, and he's like, I just want to find the edge of the universe. I want to know what, what there is. And he has this small colony of, of whatever you want to call them, AI human things and other aliens that are living with him. Gets the edge of the universe. And he travels out there and he finds and There's nothing, there's nothing there. Right you know, they were all, he, and, and he comes back. And instead of telling this, the group of civilized, whatever, human things, instead of telling them that there's nothing in the end of the universe, he tells them that he couldn't make it there and he couldn't figure it out to keep the hope and the belief with the, with the, and to keep looking, right? So they can keep, yeah. keep going. And I think that is one of the best stories that, that proves the, um, the human condition. And it's that if, if all the answers were answered, then there would be no point in living. Right. Then, then there really would be yeah. no existence. And so I think, and I think it's, yeah, no it's on. one of the
1: reasons that people are scared of science. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why people turn away from science, you know, like this idea of, of people not believing experts. And, you know, I've been through this the, the last year or so with, with COVID and anti-vaxxers and etc. Um, there was a, a guy from the same country, I'm from, from Wales called Alfred Russell Wallace. And he got into an argument with another scientist about the the, the earth being round, um, compared to flat. And they ran something called the Bedford Levels experiment over in Bedford, um, not far from me. And they, they bet, they made a wager and they bet that the, Alfred Russell Wallace said the earth is round. And so the guy said the earth is flat, Alfred Russell Wallace won. The experiment showed that the earth is round. But people want, so the, the flat earth um, conspiracy is not new. It's been around hundreds of years. And I think it stems from the fact that people want science to be observable. They don't want it to contradict things that they can see with the eye. The first thing our lecturer said to us in university was go and prove to me that the earth is round. And gee, it is difficult to do, to like go out and go, right, what experiment am I gonna run to prove that the earth is a, is a sphere? Uh, So I I get it, man. I I get that, that science is scary sometimes because we're finding stuff that is beyond what we can perceive and asks questions of us that we don't know the answers to. And like you say, you know, if we get all those answers, what's the point?
0: Somebody would create more questions. Like, nah, no, they, they, they just be like, that's "That's not true. Yeah.
1: That's the thing I really love about science though. That's, for every for every question we answer it throws up like ten more questions. Yeah. Like you speak to you speak to scientists, anyone doing PhD or re, or research. Um and they'll they'll answer their PhD will answer a specific question and then they'll go, well I'll answer that question, but now during the research I've got all these other questions. So it was um was it Faraday or might have been Kelvin, Lord Kelvin I think it was famously said at the, um in London he was head of, I think, the Royal Society. Um, he pronounced hundreds of years ago, we've solved everything in science. We know everything there is to know. And it's like um, like George Bush on the ship saying, mission accomplished. You should never do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> because someone will always come behind you and go, what about these things we don't know? What about these things? And that's the thing I take solace in in science is that for every question, we figure out there's 10 more that we've, we, we realize we don't know the answers to.
0: there'll always be the philosophers sitting over there not wanting to do the science but just coming up with the questions for people to think about existentially about their own individual being that's another thing is like if there was a like you could create an entire species of ai who are just scientific but then there'd still be humans out there that just like think of these crazy wild thoughts about how they exist within the ai sphere right um there's like the movie I robot when the run robot becomes conscious and he starts, he mm. starts, what am I doing? Why am I here? And, and, and then they start, you know, they start protecting the humans and stuff and, and, you, and it makes you think it's like, we are special for that reason. It's that we are not that we're idiots or these, we're these primate things. I don't know anything and just want to know things, but that kind of that, you know, we're these ignorant things who think we know so much but actually really don't know that much and where you start to become the smartest of of our species is when you start to realize that you really don't know anything and that asking questions is the way to live a good life
1: and you will never come across like this is my always my pitch when it comes to kind of defending science as a as a thing that that we do is that scientists have to literally is they have to literally defend their work um, in a, in a PhD viva. Uh, they have to do a defense. And when it comes to peer-to-peer um, uh, they have to defend uh, against all their peers when they put their research out in peer reviewed papers. Um, and we're actively looking all the time to find out that we're wrong. Like, and when we are wrong, it's not flip-flopping. It's not like changing our minds. It's when you learn something new, you adapt that into the current paradigm. Um, and you know, sometimes those paradigms are big, the Copernican revolution, when we realized that the sun is at the center of the, the universe as it was at the time, not the earth, that was a big shift. Those come around relatively infrequently. Um, but it's important for the science community to, to adapt to them when they learn something new. And I, f- people f- think now we use the term theory as a guess, in everyday life. Oh, I've got a theory about this thing. It's not a theory because it's not robust. It's not peer reviewed and everything else. A theory is something that is, you've observed, you've um, experimented on, you have evidence for, um, not something you've taken a guess at. And science is so robust and is so willing to change its mind. Scientists aren't willing to change their mind because they have spent 50 years studying this one thing. And if it gets proven wrong, that's 50 years essentially wasted, but science itself is always willing to adapt and it's not flip-flopping. It's we have new evidence. The paradigm changes. Yeah.
0: Well, man, I think that's a good way to end it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation, man.
1: Thank you. Thanks for being so patient with me. I had a lot of stuff on, but this has been a highlight of my week for sure.
0: Yeah. And, and you, uh, you're, you said you're going in the mountains. So I want you to have like, that's going to be so much fun. So I, Hope you have fun with that, bro. Thank you so much for coming on. You're, you're welcome anytime. Um, I'll definitely reach out in, in future months to see if you want to come back on again. But yeah, thanks again, man.
1: For sure. Thanks, buddy.
0: Episode 74, my last one for a while. Guys, again, thank you so much for this fucking route we've been on in the last year. I will be back and better than ever, sooner rather than later. Enjoy all the episodes I've done and more. And as always, stay demanding.